All right, so please turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 9. We've got a few guys coming around that are going to pass out some handouts. So it's been a little while since we were in 1 Corinthians. We've been in Revelation with Russ for a little while, but this morning we're going to be picking back up at the end of chapter 9, going through chapter 10, and then the first verse of chapter 11. So we have quite a bit to cover this morning. So fasten your seatbelts. We're going to be going through quite a bit, but hopefully there's going to be a lot of aha moments as we work through a, a passage that's really, really important for us understanding how to combat temptation, how to combat sin. Title this message, this lesson, Steering Clear of Temptation to the Glory of God. And there's a few passages, a few verses in this passage that we're really tending to take out of context. We'll take one of those verses, but we'll fail to realize that all of these are, are a whole. They're meant to fit together and be communicating one one thing. So just by way of reminder, this section, chapter nine, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter ten, they're all really one close unit of Paul responding to a question. So Paul's been addressing the issue of meat sacrificed to idols. Now I think for most of us here, that's not something that we're immediately dealing with. We're not immediately dealing with, can I buy this food from Meyer? Can I get this meat from Aldi? Probably not dealing with this exact issue, but there's a lot of implications for the way that we live our life today. So he's specifically addressing the issue of meat sacrifice to idols, which expands into a broader discussion of motivations for sacrificing your rights. Reasons why you would lay down a right that you have as a Christian. And rather than immediately addressing the specific issue of attending pagan idol-worshipping meals he first clarifies some major gaps in their understanding. Because they were going around saying, well, well, I know it's fine, and I know it's a right, I can do this. And he's basically redefining their understanding of a right and how you can use your Christian freedoms on things that are morally neutral for the good of others. So that's what he's just talked about. And then in chapter 9, or at the end of chapter 9, he picks up with where we'll be at today. So today, we're going to hear Paul's direct response to the question of idolatry. Again, they were asking... So what about meat sacrifice to idols? And he didn't really answer the question in like two chapters. And then finally in chapter 10, he's getting to it. But in the midst of that, we're going to see four pieces of Paul's direction regarding temptation in general. So what do you do when you're tempted to sin? So sure, idol worship might not be something that we're tending towards. But temptation to sin is something we are all familiar with. And this morning, we're going to look at the lifestyle needed, an example to avoid, then Paul's specific input, and then the ultimate aim, especially as we think about temptation. So the first thing we're going to look at in 24 through 27 of chapter 9 is the lifestyle demanded for avoiding temptation. The lifestyle demanded for avoiding temptation. This is a transitional statement, which is why we didn't cover it last time we were in this passage. It's a transitional statement where he pivots from talking about his own uh, kind of principles and experiences to why. Why is, he, why is he doing what he does? Why does he go about it the way he goes about it? And then the implications that that has for the Corinthians. So read with me in chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath but we an imperishable. So do not run aimlessly. So I do not run aimlessly, sorry. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So the first thing he exhorts the Corinthians to in verse 24 is run to receive the prize. And this links to, he uses running illustrations in multiple different of his, multiple of his letters. But in 2 Timothy 4, 8, he says, Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So the Christian, a believer, has received a life reorienting purpose. As believers, it's not, oh, now I guess I'm going to church and reading my Bible. There's not an aimlessness to the Christian life. We have purpose. We are to pursue the glory of God and the joy of hearing well done. The joy of hearing well done. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. We've been, for those of us that are in Christ, we've had all of our sins paid for on the cross. Positionally, we are righteous. We are in Christ's holiness. But yet we want to live a life 
that's growing in sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in pleasing the Lord because we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And Paul uses the illustration of a race. Now, when he uses this illustration, this is something that all of them would have got. So my understanding is the Olympics are generally held in different places each year. Is that every four years? I did know that, actually. But it's different all the time. In Corinth, they were right next to a city called Isthmia. Isthmia. And the Isthmian Games were held there every four years. So it's, that was as big, kind of the number two to the Olympics in that day. So the Olympics would be on a certain year, and then two years later, the Isthmian Games would happen right next to Corinth. All the athletes would either be staying in Isthmia or in Corinth. That was like the place to be for the Isthmian Games. So they were very familiar with this language of running to receive the prize because there would have been runners in town all the time. This wasn't a, a foreign concept to them. Just imagine if, I mean, we're in Kalamazoo. Imagine if Portage hosted a countrywide, everyone was coming to Portage for these competitions every four years. All of us living in the area, we would be very familiar with that dynamic. So he uses an illustration of a race. And if we think about running the race, I just kind of want to break into tables again right off the bat and just have you share a time when you won a prize for something. Ideally not a participation award, that doesn't really count, sorry. Share a time when you won a prize for something, whether an athletic competition or something else. What did you have to do to win the prize? What training, practice, or skills did you need to win? Now, this is your chance to like go back to, to fourth grade and be like, I won something and finally I had the opportunity to share it. So share a time that you won something Talk about that at tables, and that'll help think through this illustration that Paul's using. So go do that for a few minutes. All right. So I know there's probably some of you that haven't gotten to share something that you won. But I'm guessing a commonality of what you just shared is that thing that you had to compete for, and if you actually won, it probably didn't happen by accident. Not if it was a significant award a significant prize. And that's exactly the sort of thing that Paul is highlighting here. That it was, it was work for these athletes to win these games. They'd be training for years. They'd arrive. And this uh, no, I won't read it all, but it's an interesting little con- uh, glimpse into the context there. But it says, those who won these games became instant heroes and were celebrated far and wide around the Mediterranean. Paul uses this metaphor to show what all Christians must go through to win the prize of God's approval in doing what they have been called to do. Again, this is living the life that's pleasing to the Lord. We're not talking about winning God's approval as far as salvation goes, but living a life that's pleasing and fully worshipful to the Lord. Self-denial rather than demanding one's rights is the key to achieving the mission of God. And then Paul goes on to highlight three different things with three different illustrations and these three essentials to endurance in the Christian race. I would encourage each of you to think seriously about each of these three things. The first is in verse 25, self-control. Self-control. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. The word behind this is to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control control oneself, to abstain. The purpose of our self-control is not a temporary reward or fame or earthly glory. The purpose is so much higher, so we should have so much more reason to pursue self-control. The second is intentionality, having a purpose, an aim, a direction. Have any of you heard of the, the Texas sharpshooter illustration? Or heard of the Texas sharpshooter? Is this guy... I don't know if he actually existed. If he did, that's awesome. But he was shooting at a barn. And then he would shoot at the barn. And then he'd go up to the barn. And wherever the cluster of bullets was, where the hits were, he'd then draw a target around those bullets. And then everyone would come to see his barn. Like, wow, that guy can just nail the target every time. But he was drawing the target after taking his shot. And it's a, it's a funny illustration, but tragically, so many people live life that way. They get to the end of the life, and end of life, and then decide, I guess that was my target, and kind of draw a circle around where they ended up, as if that was somehow intentional. But to the contrary, we're supposed to begin with the end in mind. We're supposed to be pursuing 
the glory of the Lord from the beginning. So the question is, what are you aiming for? How would you summarize the purpose of your own life? Is your life characterized by the overarching and singular pursuit of the glory of God and seeking to honor him with all your days? It's been said before, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it every time. So what are you doing also that's maybe with selfish motives? Are there, are there motives behind that that are selfish? And how do you handle when your heart prompts you to pursue something wrong, something good for the wrong reason? So you could have messed up motives too. So our aim matters and our motives matter. So what we're aiming at is important. It's not enough. And this is super important as we think about temptation. And you think about having an aim. It's not enough to run from sin. Plenty of people flee sin only to fall back into another sin or to that same sin because they weren't pursuing something instead. So we must not just run from sin. We must also run toward our Savior. Third essential for endurance in the Christian life, the Christian race is discipline. Verse 27. Now, this is a pretty violent metaphor that Paul uses here, um, strikingly violent, that he uses to highlight the seriousness with which he pursues sanctification for the sake of being an effective and credible witness. And this is, I think, connected to Romans 8.13. I think I have that in your handout. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The terminology there, mortification, killing sin. And I think one thing I was working through is like, okay, he talked about self-control a couple of verses ago, and I was talking about discipline. What's the difference between self-control and discipline? If self-control is refusing to let passions and desires have their way with you, discipline is actively working against desires at their root so that they're no longer active. And I will just say this is not normal. Like self-discipline is not something that you encounter today around us. Now, I know there's immediately thinking, well, so-and-so, I listened to this blog, and they were talking about self-control, and, or I watched this um, YouTube video, and he talked about self-control. And, but a commonality in a lot of that is self-control for the sake of getting a better job, doing better in school. The desire and the motivation usually ultimately comes back to something that's self-centered, me-centered. Even when it is promoted in our secular culture, it's usually for selfish reasons. So the question is, when you think about discipline, have you declared war on your sinful desires, sinful urges? Paul was strict with himself. We tend to be rather lazy with ourselves. We we allow ourselves a number of things that, well, that's okay. That's not explicitly sinful. I can do that. But we're not doing what Paul models here, which is I'm living a disciplined life, a trimmed back life. So the question is, are you strict with yourself? Is the observable pattern of your life one of self-discipline? It's really easy to say, oh yeah, I'm self-disciplined. But if if someone actually watched the pattern of your life, would they see he's a disciplined man? She's a disciplined woman. And then consider what needs to change so that you can more effectively pursue the Lord, serve others, and be a light to the world around you. And that's really what Paul comes down to in verse 27. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Not just for the purpose of because I want to do more better or I want to accomplish more things. It's lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The concern is evangelistic. I want to be able to share the gospel. I want to be able to live a life that's in keeping with everything I've been saying about who Christ is. And to live a, a sloppy, undisciplined life is to risk that ultimately happening, that you communicate something and then your life communicates something different. So I want to take just a second here of private reflection. This is not going to be just table discussion, but reflect on running the race. We're going, to, we're going to keep unpacking this a little bit, but even now I just want to take a minute, reflect on these three essentials for endurance in the Christian race, self-control, intentionality, discipline. How do you need to grow in these areas? Think about it. There's probably something that's already come to mind as we've been talking. Practically, What is one, and again, practical and specific thing that you could start doing this week that would help in one of these areas? And who could you talk to today that would help hold you accountable to taking these necessary steps? So take a couple minutes, think through that privately, pray through that, reflect on those verses, and consider practically this week, I think I need to start doing this. And that's, just jot that down and and then consider who might be someone that would help hold me to that. So again, this is, 
putting pen to page for yourself, thinking through what I need to do. Take a couple minutes to do that. Certainly feel free to keep thinking through that as we go, and if other things occur to you as we're working through this passage, there might be something else that the Lord lays on your heart, but we're going to pick up with chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And this is a tragic example of falling into temptation. A tragic example of falling into temptation. We'll read the first five verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, but they were overthrown in the wilderness. Note that these blessings that Israel received, they're kind of parallel to, they're analogous to the Christian's experience of water baptism and the Lord's table, communion. Paul picked five blessings. He could have picked a bunch of others, but he he picked those that kind of parallel. He talks about baptized into Moses. He talks about spiritual food, spiritual drink. These are meant to parallel for the believers in Corinth. Hey, you know those, those things that you do every week, like taking communion? You know that thing that you, you did when you proclaimed your faith in Christ and got baptized? That parallels what happened in the Old Testament, and that didn't guarantee that they didn't fall into some temptation. So specifically, we'll talk these five blessings that Israel received when leaving Egypt. So this is talking about when Israel was leaving Egypt. First, they experienced God's guidance and his presence. They were under the cloud. God literally guided them with a cloud through the wilderness, a cloud of fire and a cloud of smoke. Exodus 13, 21, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. Second, they were subjects of God's deliverance. They passed through the sea. They were preserved as they went through the sea. Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. They were also identified with God's divinely appointed leader. That's the idea of baptized into Moses. That wasn't a term that had been used before Paul. So he's kind of introducing and drawing a connection here that, hey, they were associated with, publicly identified with God's divinely appointed leader. They were baptized into Moses quote from Mark Taylor here that I think is helpful. Paul's intent is clear, however, which is to establish the parallel between the experience of ancient Israel and her salvation from the Egyptians and the believer's deliverance from the bondage of sin symbolized in Christian baptism. Just as Israel identified with Moses in the events of the Exodus, so too believers identify with their deliverer, Christ, in the new and greater Exodus, freedom from bondage to sin. So fourth, they were sustained by God's power. They ate the same spiritual food, is the way verse 3 says it. God sustained his people in the wilderness with food from heaven. Exodus 16, 15. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it, this, this bread that was coming from heaven? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So God supernaturally preserves his people, sustained them by his power. And then fifthly, they were nourished by God himself. Similarly here, they drank the same spiritual drink. So Paul is referring to the Old Testament story of the wilderness where Moses provided water for the people out of a rock, which is a really significant story. Exodus 17, 6, Numbers 20, and then also it's talked about in multiple Psalms. So perhaps Paul forged a connection between the text and the confession that God is the rock of Israel. So really, really interesting passage that um, I realized could have spent a whole lot of time digging into exactly what's meant in chapter 4. But the, the main point is that it was God himself who was nourishing them. So the, the point for the Corinthians was they couldn't then say, well, yeah, but in, in Exodus, they were, they were just kind of taking care of themselves. Like, no, no excuse. They were actually directly provided for by God even saying that the rock was Christ. So kind of a prefiguring of Christ's provision was happening when they were being uh, sustained by the water from the rock. But then verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So why, all these, why these five things and what are they illustrating? So these, these are illustrating amazing spiritual blessings that these people received. They were receiving God's blessings lavished on them 
But then ultimately, that people, the same people that receive those blessings, would by and large come to reject God, to rebel against Him, all these blessings in their life, yet rejecting Him. God's analysis and conclusion, they did not please Him, verse 5. And I think this is where it gets to close to home. Opportunities and nearness to, or involvement in, even significant acts of God, like the Exodus, do not guarantee a regenerate heart. Just because you've been surrounded by opportunities and blessings, just because those close to you have been walking with the Lord, just because you've even maybe seen the Lord work in amazing ways, that in and of itself doesn't guarantee a regenerate heart. Why did this happen? Why did those fall in the wilderness? Why did so many die? Paul says, This happened, verse 6 and 11 both. These things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And then verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So as sobering as it is to think about a whole generation except for two, bodies scattered in the wilderness. Why did this happen? This verse says this happened for our example, for the example of believers. So there's something for us to learn from this. And that's what we're going to look at in verses 6 through 11. Five lessons for us from their failures. So there's five lessons that mirror the five blessings they received. Though they had received so much from God, they failed to live in light of the grace that they'd been shown. Read with me in verses 6 through 11. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So the first lesson, let us not desire evil. Let us not desire evil. This is where it starts, doesn't it? It starts in the heart. Do you let desires linger? Do you recognize that a sinful desire is actually to be worked against? There's a growing viewpoint today among evangelical Christians that say it is okay, quote-unquote, to have sinful desires, to have sinful attractions, to have sinful longings, as long as you don't act on them. This verse clearly teaches that sin must be combated at the heart level. What happened to the Israelites. I mean, you're reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you see these things happening. That is a reminder, don't desire evil. Don't desire it. That's in verse 6 again. It took place that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, second lesson, do not be idolaters. Don't go after idols. And I want to just, full, full group discussion here, what does idolatry look like today? What does idolatry look like today? How do you see idolatry, whether just kind of out there idolatry or even just if you want to share some heart tendencies and idols? What what does it look like today for us to not be idolaters? Thoughts? Lots of right answers to this one too, so. Yeah, great. Yeah, the idol of, of busyness, the idol of feeling, and, and with that comes a sense of, I, I feel very important when I'm so busy. Yeah, great. I mean, not great, but great example. What else? What else might idolatry look like today? Yeah, great example. Social media, there's plenty of Plenty of opportunities to both see those that then we're thinking, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to be like that, I'm supposed to imitate that, but also then to, to have the idol of wanting to look a certain way before others. Absolutely. What else? What is it? 
Laziness? Flesh that out. What, what, how does that look like an idol? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's what's amazing is that both of those idols that were mentioned, the idol of busyness, the idol of laziness, those things can operate in our hearts at the same time, which is crazy to think about, that I can be both busy and lazy simultaneously and fall into both of those um, vain pursuits. Yeah, great. What else? Money can always be an idol. I could always use a little bit more. Yep, absolutely. It's various as far as what idol, idolatry looks like, but ultimately it's an issue of the heart. Our hearts are wanting to go after something other than God. That doesn't look that different today than it did a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, three thousand years ago. Now we just have a whole lot more technology to make it look less pathetic. I mean, then you had to like literally like craft something out of wood and be like, I'm going to worship that. Now you can just conjure up anything you want to worship by a few taps and then you have it in far greater uh, high definition than the idols of old that couldn't even speak. So there's a huge variety of idols, but ultimately it's a heart issue. And this passage warns us, don't go after idols. Number three, do not indulge in sexual immorality. Do not indulge in sexual immorality. Um, we don't have time to go there and dig into it, but for this account, Numbers 25, 1 through 9 is the account that Paul is referencing here. Fourthly, do not put Christ to the test. Do not put Christ to the test. And then fifth, do not grumble. I think we can often think that, oh, those first, first four that we talk about, like those, like, yeah, I'm good. I'm not going to go do sexual immorality. I'm not going to bow down before an idol. I'm not going to, um, what's the other one? Desire evil, but then grumbling all of a sudden. It's just like, I get a pass on that. I'm just going to live a life that's kind of dealing with just kind of this low-grade dissatisfaction with what the Lord has brought me. Maybe it's a high-grade dissatisfaction, but this kind of grumbling attitude just festers like a fever in our lives. So these failings are designed to serve as an example for us. So we should take that warning and that example seriously. And just from this list of five alone, I'm confident that we have all experienced temptation to at least one of these areas, if not all of them. So this is not an abstract warning. This isn't some sort of vague, ah, I can't really relate to what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the Israelites. No, his whole point is they were an example that apply today. So in light of that, Again, another list of five. I don't know exactly how that happened. But here's five keys to withstanding temptation. This is a good thing to have in mind as a defensive strategy for Satan's attacks. Verses 12 through 13. What do you do when you find your heart inclined toward any of the above-listed sins or any other sins for that matter? What do you do when you notice in your heart that desire has started I'm tending towards something I shouldn't tend towards. And this is where we see these five keys to withstanding temptation. I will say these verses, verse 12 and 13, are key, key verses that you should seriously consider memorizing ASAP. These are good verses to have at the ready because they address so many lies that Satan throws at us when we're tempted to sin. So the first, well, we'll, read the, we'll read the verse first. Verses 12 through 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the first key is to recognize your own vulnerability. Recognize your own vulnerability. If you think, oh, I got this, I'm standing, I'm good, I'm safe, I'm... Satan can't touch this. No. Be aware of your own propensity to stumble. You are vulnerable. And vulnerability is amplified by us thinking we're not vulnerable. Be aware of your own propensity to stumble. Second, keep temptation in perspective. Keep temptation in perspective. When tempted to sin, we must realize that we're not encountering something new. 
Satan is going to make you think something other than this. He's going to try and make you think something other than this. He's going to try and make you think what I'm enduring, what I'm being tempted toward, no one has been tempted like me. No one has endured this before. No one has made it through this before. No. Keep temptation in perspective. There's nothing new in the realm of temptations. The temptations you encounter are common to mankind. It's not, oh, this is a 21st century thing. No one understands what I'm going through back in the first century. No, no temptation has overtaken you but what is common to man. Keep temptation in perspective and then embrace God's faithfulness. Again, we're tempted to question God's faithfulness in the midst of these trials. When you are tempted to question God's faithfulness, what do you do? When you are experiencing temptation to sin, this will be a primary point of attack for Satan. He will make you question the faithfulness of God. And then fourthly, remember your God-enabled ability. And that's an important little uh, adjective there, God-enabled ability. Otherwise, this would be in contradiction to the first point. We're not saying, take heed lest you fall, you can do it. You're saying, no, take heed lest you fall, you can't do it, but God gives you the ability. Verse 13, um, verse C, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And this connects with verse 12 to highlight this is a divinely enabled ability. Freedom in Christ means that you are not a slave to sin. You are not a slave to sin, but a slave to Christ, a slave to righteousness. Which means, as a believer in Christ, you are not chained to your sin, but you are instead free to be holy. You are free to overcome temptation. Again, this is a lie that we're tempted to believe when we experience temptation. We're tempted to think, I can't do it. I've fallen into this sin 500 times before. How can I possibly overcome this? You do have the ability in Christ because you're no longer enslaved to sin. Certainly, sin still has power in our lives, but it still has, has an impact in our lives, but it doesn't have absolute sovereignty over us. It's not our master anymore. It's, it's now seeking to pretend it is. It seeks to, to speak to the believer as if we're still under its authority. But in Christ, the authority of sin has been totally obliterated in our lives. We're free. We're no longer slaves to sin. And then lastly, fifth, seek the God-provided escape route. You can do all four of the first things, maybe. You're doing those just fine. You, you recognize your own vulnerability. You keep temptation in perspective. You embrace God's faithfulness. You remember your God-enabled ability. And then, in the midst of the temptation, you're thinking, ah, I just got to knuckle it out. Just got to stick through this. Got to just endure this and endure this and endure this and endure this. But you don't actually look around and say, where's the escape route? How can I get away from this temptation? How can I remove myself from this situation? How can I not go down that road again? He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So endurance and escape are not like you have to choose between one or the other. Escape is going to be the means by which you endure the temptation. So seek the God-provided escape route. This is a biblical promise for believers. You need to believe and embrace this truth. When you are tempted, God always provides an escape route. When we're building fire, like building a building, not building fire, when we're building buildings, do you have to like, keep up to date with like fire code and stuff and there's certain legislation about like where there has to be doors and why there has to be an exit sign that you can see even if the power goes out or another exit sign and why there's not an exit sign at that door because if you run out that door you're actually going to be further into the building. This is a good just pause moment of safety. If a fire alarm does go off, which I don't know there's going to be one today, go out that door or out that door. All right, now I've said that in case deacons wonder. So there's exits clearly marked. But somehow we tend to think that in the midst of temptation, like, oh, God didn't, God didn't build this life, God didn't build this situation up to code. He forgot to put a fire escape. He forgot to put a temptation escape route. This verse says there's always an escape route provided. Questions for discussion at table. Think about Israel and when they left Egypt. Paul listed five spiritual blessings they had. What are some others? How, did, how does their case that is, lots of blessings received, but eventually hardened and rebellious, motivate urgency in our own pursuit of holiness and obedience? And then which of the above five keys to withstanding temptation are you most prone to neglect? Why is that? 
and how could you grow in implementing this? So take a few minutes to discuss both those questions. Maybe spend less time on the first one than on the second um, because there's just a lot to unpack on that second one. So work through those. All right. So I know some of you are just getting into the second question, but um, would anyone be willing to share something you guys talked about at, uh, at your tables regarding the second question about which of these above are challenging and that you're prone to neglect? example. Yeah. What else? Anyone else want to personally share? I mentioned the fourth one about remembering our God-given ability in just the spirit that's living inside us and giving us the strength to actively flee from temptation and avoid sin. I thought of the, the verse in Romans, I think it's Romans 8, it talks about um, the Christian or the believer as more than the conqueror. Mm-hmm. So just remembering that we already have the ability to to be free. Amen. Great, great point. Anyone else? For how many of you did you answer, or maybe you didn't verbally answer, but it was number five, like seeking God's provided escape route. I think that would be my personal tendency. Yeah. I, so maybe based on hands raised, it's even distribution. I think any of these we can fall into, and it seems like the moment we start to grasp one, we start to fail to realize the other. One thing we talked about at the table over there is with the escape route, oftentimes we might even be aware of the escape route, but it's like, ah, I have to, I have to go upstairs to get out, and it's like it takes work, and it's kind of a hard escape route. It's not like the easy way out, um, and so often we just choose to succumb to temptation rather than actually taking God's escape route. So, any of the thoughts on that question or the previous question? All right, we're going to pick up the pace and fly through Paul's specific advice for their specific temptation, verses 14 through 20. So, Paul finally answers their question. They brought up in chapter 8, verse 1, what about eating meat sacrificed to idols? He says, now concerning food offered to idols, his answer ends up being yes and no, which is great. Yes, you can eat the food, but no, don't go to the temples. So reading the verses, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread and we are many. We who are many are one body for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he lands. Verse verse 14 says, flee idolatry. Don't go there. Remember, this is in reference to specifically attending pagan idol worship festivals. Verse 10, for if, of chapter 8, verse 10 of chapter 8 says, For if anyone sees you who, quote unquote, have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Paul invites them as sensible people to imply, apply the instructions that he's given above. He highlights that idolatry is something to flee from and seek the God provided escape route when tempted to fall into idolatry. Run from it. The reasoning is he gives is that participation in a physical celebration 
without recognizing the underlying spiritual reality is serious because to participate in a spiritual celebration is to participate in the reality behind the celebration. So there's, he's saying like, hey, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna celebrate this thing that's actually being done in honor to demons, you are participating in the reality behind that. He, he parallels this with communion. Communion is our corporate celeb- celebration of our participation in the new covenant. Chapter 11 of verse, uh, sorry, chapter, chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So he says, don't participate with demons, verses 19 through 20. The point is not the idol. The point is not the food. The point is the demonic reality behind celebrations to other deities. Yeah, the food, so what? The idol, it's wood, it's brass, it's just a thing. But what's behind that is the concern. The reality behind that is that other deities are being celebrated. And he highlights that that's the same thing that was happening in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, 17, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that they had, that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. So there's two extremes for us to avoid today, two tendencies. One is to think demons are behind every evil we see in the world. The other is to think that demons are not behind any of the evil we see in the world. Both of those are wrong. Both of those do not give um, adequate, uh, you're not listening to the text enough of scripture to hear, you, you can't come away from reading the scripture and be like, oh, there's no such thing as demons. Demons aren't behind everything. That's just kind of too, too big of a deal. But the other side of it is you can't, you can't come away from it and be like, everything's a demon. Because you have to realize our own sin nature, the flesh, um, just, we don't even need a demon directly tempting us to something for us to fall into sin. So there's errors on both sides of that just to be aware of. And Paul says, there's mutual exclusivity between fellowship with Christ and fellowship with demons. So in light of the fact demons are alive and well today, they are, they are behind certain evil activities, and Paul's highlighting one of those here, idol worship. Because of that, don't have fellowship with Christ and try to have fellowship with demons. Those things are mutually exclusive. Either you're truly worshiping Christ, in which case you have no business going to a pagan temple, or you're content worshiping and serving idols of the day, and you have no business pretending to worship Christ. Later on, we'll talk about it next week in chapter 11, Paul explains how serious it is to partake of communion in an unworthy manner. To do so is to invite God's judgment and provoke the Lord's jealousy and to pick a fight with God. That's what he says in verse 22 of chapter 10. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I know we're flying through this, but basically Paul is saying you can't have both. You can't keep worshiping demons and actually living a life that pleases God. You're going to choose one or the other. What is it going to be? Choose this day whom you will serve is the way that Joshua worded it. So, last section that we'll see here as we're talking about temptation. So that was in relation to Paul giving his specific advice for eating meat, sacrificed to idols, attending those worship festivals. Now we come to the necessary goal for overcoming temptation. The necessary goal for overcoming temptation, verses 23 of chapter 10, all the way through the first verse of chapter 11. The desire to glorify God changes everything. When faced with a decision, how does the desire to glorify God factor into that decision for you? This whole section of 1 Corinthians is addressing idol worship. We've been talking about that this morning. Last time we were going through this passage, talking about meat sacrificed to idols. Again, you're not feeling the immediate relevance of, am I going to eat meat sacrificed to idols for lunch today? But this has countless implications for the Christian life in any age. This mindset, this, the way that we're going to work through 23 through the end here, this mindset that Paul puts forward has implications for clothing choices, for entertainment options, for the topics of conversation that you choose to have with other believers, or topics of conversations with non-believers. 
This has implications for the type of thing you post on social media, implications for the type of music you listen to, and the list goes on. How am I going to interact with these things that are, okay, maybe they're morally neutral, but then I become aware of something else behind it, and for someone else it has this association with this thing. How am I going to handle that? So, verses 23 through 1 gives us principles for that. All things are lawful for me, quote-unquote. This is what they're saying. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, as Psalms says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go, Eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This, and maybe you've, you've thought it, I think we most young believers think this at some point. This idea of asking, am I allowed to do this as a Christian? Whether or not something is allowed as a Christian is a very odd question to ask. This passage instead teaches us these are the sorts of questions we should ask. Is this action going to be spiritually beneficial for those close to me? Is this choice going to build up other Christians? Will this promote good for my neighbor? These are the sorts of questions that this passage teaches us to ask. Not, am I allowed to do this? Am I Am I permitted to do this? That's not the question, the is it lawful, is it lawful, am I allowed to do this? This passage teaches us to forego the freedom for the other person. The Corinthians were arguing that they had knowledge, like I know these things, because I know these things I can do whatever I want. And that, and that knowledge allowed them to go to pagan feasts, but Paul argues that it is actually ignorance that allows the Christian to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's why he says, don't ask. Don't, don't ask, hey, is this meat sacrificed to idols? You're, you're kind of, and there, you'd, you'd know the person that's selling the food to you. And you ask the question, and non-believer, pagan, says, yep, it was sacrificed to the god so-and-so last night at this pagan ritual, and you know what happens there. Still want to buy it? Christians then, yeah. That really miscommunicates to that person that knows and is wondering, what's he going to do with this? So he says, basically, eat meat, enjoy the blessings of God's creation, have meals with unbelievers, but as soon as you become aware of something's close association with evil, demon worship, or sin, it's time to reevaluate the ramifications of enjoying that, that thing. So you go to the store, maybe you've, been, you've just really been enjoying a hot sauce for a long time, and you're like, man, this is the best hot sauce. I'll have it on my eggs, I'll have it on my burritos, I'll have it on everything. And then one day, you just decide to read the back of it, and it says, like, 100% of the proceeds, proceeds go to Satanists. Or something like, well, I probably should pick a different hot sauce. Because now I'm aware that this is overtly related to pagan worship of demons. So, again, that's probably not something you're going to specifically encounter, but that sort of thing where you become aware, before I didn't know, and now I know. Or this person says, oh, you listen to that group? I'm surprised you listen to that group, considering their stance on blank, 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 and blank. And then you're like, oh man, I used to really like their music, but now this non-believer is giving me a question. They're saying, are you still going to listen to this knowing what you know now? And the question isn't about our freedom in that point. The question is about what is this going to do to them? How are they going to observe my response to the new information that I've just received? So again, you can think through the implications for how that intersects with your own life. But if continuing in the activity has the potential to damage the reputation of Christ, then don't continue. Your freedom is not a license to damage the conscience of another. Let your one aim be to glorify God. This is how Paul closes. Everything should be done 
with the aim of bringing honor to the Lord and avoiding anything that would bring dishonor to his name. Paul specifically applies this, act, these, uh, this to actively seeking to live an unoffensive life. And you think about Paul and like how many people he offended. We'll touch on that in a second. But note what he says in verse 32. This isn't just talking about when you're with your believing friends. This isn't just talking about when you're out there. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. That covers everyone, believers and unbelievers, those that are from the same background as you, if you're from a, from a Gentile background or if you're from a Jewish background, same background. It's talking about those from different backgrounds as you, same background as you, and believers and unbelievers. I'm aiming to live a life that's unoffensive. Paul offended a lot of people. Read the book of Acts, read his epistles, read what he went through. You don't get treated the way Paul was treated if you didn't offend someone. He offended a lot of people. He did not please everyone. But what offended and displeased was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the abrasiveness of the messenger. So often we can see the example of Paul and those that endured persecution and think, oh, we're going to be hated for Christ's namesake, so I can just do whatever I want to do to make people hate me and I'll be like Christ. No. To the contrary, we want what's offensive to be the gospel. We want what's offensive to be the message that we bring of salvation. We don't want the offense to be because we did something that we didn't need to do or that we didn't do something that we totally could have done. Christ is the perfect example that Paul was seeking to imitate and he invited the Corinthians to imitate him. In a moment, I'll cut you guys loose to talk about these three questions. How does verses 23 and 24 challenge you to think differently about Christian freedom? How is it glorifying to God that we not offend others by our actions? Are there specific areas of your life where you might be giving unnecessary offense to others? And then why is imitation such an important part of growing as a Christian? Who are you learning from by watching their example? Paul closes by saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The pattern there is we need to be having someone to watch, to learn from. And then just as we think about next week, I would really encourage you to take, take this week, memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 13. You can do it. You can put that to memory. You will not regret having that verse memorized. And then also, since we'll be going through chapter 11 next week, if you could read it, that'd be very helpful. And then how does this passage, chapter 11, how does this passage together with a few others referenced there provide a biblical definition and understanding of headship? So we'll get into that next week as we work through chapter 11. I'm gonna close us in prayer then you guys can discuss those three questions at tables, and then when you're done discussing those, just have someone at your table, close your table in prayer. So I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. This is a lot that we've just walked through and a lot that pertains to us today about how to avoid temptation, how to run from temptation, but then also some of those undergirding reasons why. Lord, help us to be motivated by pure motives, right motives, and just that overarching, reigning, supreme motive to see you glorified in our lives. We do want to live a life that magnifies Christ, that brings honor to his name, and that everyone around us can look and say, that person is different because of what Christ has done in his or her heart. Help us in that, Lord, and we just depend on you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.